0: Hello, my name is miranda i 'm a sophomore i 'm not going to use that okay i 'm going to be doing the scripture reading it 's fine um, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, "The Lord be with you." And they answered, "The Lord bless you." Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward will be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with with his young women, lest in another field you will be assaulted so she kept close to the young women of boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests and she lived with her mother-in-law would you pray with me dear god thank you for this day and this opportunity to stop in the midst of this busy davidson life and come to worship you as a community um, we pray that during this busy time of exams and papers that you may quiet our hearts that we may reflect upon um, just how thankful we are and how appreciative we can be for everything we are given especially during times of hardship. Um, I pray that you may help us to stay optimistic and positive and to draw on each other's support and strength during our tough times. Um, I also would like to take a time to pray for Canterbury um, today and their ministry area, that they may continue to build a community of strong Christians, of strong followers, and to be a home for those who are questioning or curious about this faith, um, pray that you may be with them in their work and be with Sid tonight as he preaches that you may be speaking through his words and that his words may touch all of our hearts. For it's in your name we pray, amen.
1: Hello. as high as it goes, or, oh, the trigger, that might be it, alright, that's one of those, uh, felt really strong in that moment, <laughs> welcome everybody, uh, I know there's like booming in the background, so I'm going to try to speak up a little bit, uh, I'm glad you're here, uh, thoughts on November at Davidson, welcome to November, thoughts, rain pretty hard, I think, (laughs) that's a great conversation, Uh, (laughs) it's going to go like this for a while, okay, so those who don't know me, my name is Sid Druin, and I'm the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship, it's a Christian campus minister that exists to serve you all, wherever you are, and however you are, and we mean that, we mean that RUF isn't intended to be for one kind of person, we hope it feels like a space where multiple kinds of people, from multiple Campus scenes from hopefully every campus scene from any personal background can feel welcomed and encouraged and be a part of us. Um, We mean that, and we say that even if you're not really sure where you fit in with Jesus and Christianity, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced uh, believer or spiritual skeptic, uh, or we feel more comfortable with something in between or none of the above. Uh, I'll say thanks so much for coming. We're really glad you're here. Uh, We hope you feel welcomed and I'm gonna just scoot a little bit closer and just to maybe physically emphasize that. So Thanks for coming. Uh, We're glad you're here, especially if you're new. Thanks for taking the risk Okay What we've been up to this semester in large group is we've been looking at the books of judges and now the book of Ruth And we've looked at a series that I've been calling uh, love in an R-rated world. I know (laughs) it's a great title (laughs) The whole unit has erupted over my title. Like, the Book of Judges was a constant, we studied that the first half of the semester, it was a constant reminder of uh, just how TV mature or rated R our world can be. Yet at the same time, in the Book of Judges, we saw that God is a God of love. Over and over again, we saw his caring and often shocking response, his his shocking rescue of his people over and over and over again. So, the book of Ruth, similarly, invites us into a kind of love, but it's a smaller and more intimate kind of love on a a different kind of scale. And the question becomes, how do ordinary people move forward in an R-rated world? So, how do ordinary people move forward in an R-rated world? That's sort of the book of Ruth's questions: how do two widowed women and a forgotten farmer act out the intricacies of love in the days when the judges ruled? So how do we at Davidson live out a positive love in the midst of so much that is so negative? The ongoing geopolitical chaos in places that I feel like I mention every week and don't seem to get better. For instance, Kenya, Niger, Israel, Syria, and North Korea. The heavy duty hurricanes that still have relief efforts going, the crazed violence in Charlottesville, Las Vegas, and now we add Sutherland Springs, Texas. It's sad to see that that list grows every single week. Then there's Hollywood, sexual harassment and sexual assault, let alone the hashtag MeToo stories that highlight even uh, we, that we even at Davidson have uh, stories that have harm and hurt and heartache within them. But God gives us an intimate personal history of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz to lovingly ask us a few questions what's your purpose what do you put on this planet at this precise and particular moment to do and we get to answer those loving questions in reality for the next week, for the next day for the next hour in all of its R-ratedness But the book of Ruth's focal point is clearly behind the scenes an invisible God. A God invisibly working the angles, wholly, stubbornly, uneasily, and extravagantly loving R-rated people like you and me. And that's really the basic what we've been up to. But before we kind of ask this passage about what our loves to look like, and we unveil God's love once again. Would you pray with me? And let's do one more time. There's a lot of distractions, so I might pray extra long. <laughs> so, anyway. Father, uh, I pray that you would be with this time. That you would uh, help uh, us in our fatigue. Um, and the distractions that are going on outside. Uh, the distractions that are going on within us. Uh, we bring a lot to this space. Uh, we bring a lot from a heavy day, from a heavy week, or from a light, an easy day, and an easy week. Uh, we, we bring lots of emotions. We bring guilt and shame. We, we bring joy and, and, and gladness. I pray that you would be with all of those feelings and all of those situations, that you'd help us to sort them in your presence, that you'd help us to pray them even now to you. And I pray that your word, this story, this story from a time... Uh, long ago we would start to apply to our lives. That you'd use your words once again and you'd show us Jesus. You'd show us Jesus high and lifted up, more believable and more beautiful in the eyes of our hearts. We need you to show up. We need you to, to help uh, concentrate our affections and focus our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> So, on September 12, 2008, something momentous happened. Anybody? September 12, 2008. It began in England in 1597, then it wove its way through New England in 1850, and from Nashville, Tennessee, it stormed the hearts, the minds, and even the wallets of at least eight million people. I'm talking, of course, about Taylor Swift's love song. Anybody? No, no one gets that? Man. In case you're not familiar with this classic, yes, thanks, Josh. In case you're not familiar with this classic, Taylor, can I call her that? Can I call T. Swift. T. Swift writes a song about a boy and that her friends and her family don't really like. And she casts this boy as Romeo, and she casts herself as Juliet, and she even sometimes identifies herself as Hester Prynne from The Scarlet Letter. I won't sing these precious lyrics, but here are some of the lines from the song Uh, to refresh, or it sounds like maybe to inform some of you. (laughs) Here it goes. "'Cause you were Romeo, I was the Scarlet Letter, and my daddy said, stay away from Juliet, but you were everything to me, and I was begging you, please don't go." And I said, Romeo, take me somewhere we could be alone, I'll be waiting all that's left to do is run you'll be the prince and I'll be the princess it's a love story baby just say yes and because I can't help myself we're gonna keep going my faith in you was fading when I met you on the outskirts of town and I said Romeo save me I've been feeling so alone I keep waiting for you but you never come is this in my head I don't know what to think he knelt on the ground, pulled out a ring, and said, Marry me, Juliet. You'll never have to be alone. I love you, and that's all I really know. I talked to your dad. Go pick out a white dress. It's a love story. Baby, just say yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Taylor Swift has already angrily memed me at this point. Okay. I don't know if you noticed noticed the ending to that song in the midst of such catchiness, such a catchy chorus, but uh, basically Taylor Swift rewrote the ending to William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) Bold, admittedly. The star-crossed lovers no longer actually commit mutual suicide over a mistake. Instead, Romeo gets Juliet's dad's blessing, gets a ring by spring, And it all ends with a white wedding dress and a picturesque proposal. In an interview, Taylor Swift calls this happy ending uh, what the best love story ever told deserved. She said that she and many others like her were hoping for an ending like this. So, and before, and it's already maybe too late, before some of the English majors here get all huffy and suddenly sigh and roll your eyes about popular music, Taylor Swift is right in some ways, isn't she? Can't she be? She'll hunt you down if, if you don't think so. Um, look, we do at some deep-seated heart, and I'd say a cultural level, hope for a love story that ends with a yes. We hope maybe even for a white dress and to be a prince and a princess. Okay. And this desire for this love that doesn't care what anyone thinks, what anyone says, for a perfect love with a happy and eternal ending, this desire is actually a good desire. And I would argue it's set in our hearts by God, and it's only truly satisfied by Jesus. Not by some Romeo. But this love story narrative can also blind us to what's going on, not only in our lives, but also in Ruth chapter 2. And perhaps most importantly, the romance of a love story and the wedding industry can blind us to the identity-changing power of other kinds of love. Okay? You see, the temptation is only to read the story of Ruth and Boaz through a love story lens. After all, there's two very different, very unlikely people have this incredible meeting. They fall in love. They get married. They have a child. And that child is the great, has the grandfather of King David. And long after that, becomes an ancestor of Jesus. Sorry for the spoiler if you haven't read the end of Book of Ruth before. That's what happens. I know we're not there yet. Should have probably gone to there. Anyway, now that we all know how the story plays out, I think it's really important to see how tempting it is that Boaz's loving generosity for Ruth is not just romantic courtship. I think that's our temptation to see all the stuff that he's about to do in chapter 2 and to think this is some sort of ancient Near Eastern, she's kind of cute, Uh, let's merge Outlook calendars and fill our (laughs) Instagram profiles with fall-themed couple shots, sort of wooing. That's what our our temptation is, to take all of those things and apply them to the story. Instead, in Ruth chapter 2, verses 4 through 23, Boaz's love for Ruth is over and above romance. Boaz's love for Ruth is over and above romance is a template for us to fill with our lives in a scene of Jesus' love for us to adore. So Boaz's love for Ruth in this chapter is a template for us to fill in with our lives, and it is a scene for us about Jesus' love that we get to adore. So that's what we're up to. And in our passage, we get invited into exercising and enjoying this kind of love, this over and above kind of love, By highlighting three ways it's very nearly excessive and three ways it plays out. Okay? So look at the first things with me. You can look in your outline. All right. Primarily in verses 4 through 8, 10, 13 through 14, and 19, Boaz shows us a love that is present. Okay, so first we see a love that's present. It's a love that's over and above a minimum pity. Second, Primarily in verses 7 through 17, Boaz shows us a love that gives away good things. It's a love that's over and above the minimum letter of the law. And third, primarily in verses 18 through 23, we see a love that takes on ownership. It's a love that's over and above the minimum of advice. Is everyone tracking with that? That's on your outline. You'll notice, by the way, I'm saying primarily and I'm kind of going out of order because we're addressing this passage thematically as well as in sequence. So uh, that said, we're going to begin with verses 4 through 8, 10, 13 through 14, and 19. That is the theme of a love that is present. So we're going to look first a love that is present. Okay? So since a lot of the extravagance of what Boaz is doing and why he's doing it is thematic. I think it's important to take a step back and try to figure out what exactly is going on. What's led to this moment? Especially if you've not been here with us before, or if you've not read the book of Ruth before. So, just very quickly, very briefly, the book of Ruth begins with two Israelites, Ruth, uh, Naomi and Elimelech. And they are husband and wife, and they have two children, Malon and Kilion. And there's this massive famine that hits the land. They take off for food-rich Moab. And in food-rich Moab, Elimelech dies. Okay, so the husband of Naomi, the father of Malon and Kilian, dies. And Ruth and Malon and Kilian actually get, they, they get married. Malon and Kilian get married to two uh, Moabite, Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Okay, but then uh, Naomi's sons, Orpah and Ruth's husbands die. So it's kind of a really tough start. And essentially, in the midst of the morning, Naomi hears about good news from Bethlehem. The Lord's visit he's brought grain. And hearing this news, she takes off for Bethlehem. Uh, In the middle of that journey, on the crossroads between the two destinations from Moab to Bethlehem, Naomi realizes that, oh my goodness, I'm taking these women out of their homeland, away from their people, away from their God, away from their family, away from any future prospects of marriage. And so she tells Orpah and, uh, and Ruth to, to go back. Orpah listens after two persuasions. Ruth clings after three. And she stays with... Him. So she stays with... I know, I know. It's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled about it too. Because it's the whole story. If Ruth didn't stay... Uh, anyway. Uh, okay. So essentially, Naomi and Ruth enter Bethlehem. And they make a life there. But Naomi is devastated by grief. She's de- devastated by widowhood. And she stays in bed all day. Ruth decides she's going to get up and she's going to do this thing called gleaning. Which is following after harvesters to pick up what they've left behind in the harvest. And then we, in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 3, we see uh, Ruth chanced upon her chance. Like her chance chanced upon this field of Naomi's relative Boaz. And that's sort of where we left things last week. We left things with her coming upon, uh, by, God's, by God being up to something, Boaz's field. Okay? So, if you look kind of on the surface of our passage tonight, like if you kind of were following along with the reading, um, if you kind of... <laughs> just gonna, I, I'm just trying here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so if you follow on the surface or the Cliff Notes level summary of this passage, especially tonight's episode, it just seems like blah, right? Ruth looks for grain. She gets lots of grain. Hooray. I mean, isn't that essentially what it's just about? Okay. But as we kind of deep dive into Boaz's love and what God is up to through Boaz's love for Ruth, we begin to, we begin to see something very powerful going on. So look, for instance, at the way that the initial verses of our story emphasize the importance of presence. So look at these first few verses. We notice where people are present and how they are present right off the bat. According to verse 7, Ruth has been at the edges of a field, the gleaning sections. She's got this sharp rock in one hand, a bundle of bent barley stalks in her lap on the other, and and she's on her hands and knees crawling after discarded bits of tattered grain. From early morning, we're told, until now. She's been in it for quite a while. But just then, in the ragged gleanings, God shows up for Ruth in the form of Boaz. And we read in verse 4, Behold, Boaz came from the town of Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. So look at the way that Boaz shows up. Where Ruth spends her days. In the ancient Israelite equivalent of the unemployment line. At the edges of the field. At the fringes of public visible society. And then Boaz spreads the Lord's presence and blessing with his lips. Even in verse 8, calling Ruth my daughter. An address that identifies Ruth not as a foreigner, but as in the part and parcel of the people of God. But Boaz's presence is not just felt by his words, it's also enacted by his actions, his love for Ruth. Boaz commends Ruth's protection, he commands it, from all physical and and sexual assault, which is likely for a foreman woman in these fields. He gives her choice harvest options, a position to glean among the stocks instead of stalk around looking for leftover bits. And even allows her to drink from the same vessels that his laborers are drinking from in order to not get thirsty out there in the hot sun. In verse 10, uh, she realizes that Ruth realizes that she's being treated like an Israelite and not like the Moabite, Bo- right? She's not being treated like the Moabite. That the foreman of Boaz points out that she is two times. He calls her a Moabite twice in one sentence in verse 6. He's making a pretty big point. Okay, Ruth is so moved by Boaz's generosity, by his over-the-top kind of love, that she asks Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a stranger or foreigner? Ruth feels like a fully human person for the first time in a long time. She feels favored. She feels noticed. She's no longer invisible. She's no longer despised. She's delighted in. And Boaz's response to to Ruth's question is to recount the story of her sacrifice to her. The story that Ruth thought no one knew, or at least no one cared about. Boaz is intimately acquainted with her story. And then he prays for Ruth in verse 12. And this response leads Ruth to say, not ask this time, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. In the whoosh, there's a whoosh of, of Boaz's love, Ruth re- reluctantly, maybe even hesitantly, calls herself a shipka. Okay, a shipka is the lowest kind of maidservant, charged with the lowest kinds of tasks. But in ancient Israel, in that culture, societally, a shipka is still three social rungs above a gleaner. So she has raised herself in her own estimation based on Boaz's treatment of her. Okay. So finally, in verse 14, Boaz elevates Ruth above her self-proclaimed foreigner status or her maidservant status even. Boaz invites Ruth to a meal with him. It's kind of hard to overstate what this means. Carolyn James does a good job of describing the awesome power of this gesture. A gleaner seated among paid workers, a Moabitess dining with Israelites, a man serving a woman, the poor included among the rich, an outsider embraced by the inner circle. Ruth was on the losing end of all three categories for an Israelite on the losing end of ethnicity, the losing end of social status, the losing end of gender. But Boaz refused to maintain these boundaries. Now God's people through Boaz are embracing Ruth. You see, Boaz's words and his actions go well beyond pity for a hungry woman. They push past ethnic differences, social disparities, and even gender norms of the time. By his very presence, by noticing and favoring and comforting Ruth, Boaz is practicing something over and above a condescending pity, or just romance. He's practicing empathy. An empathy that is healing Ruth. It's a challenge in the way that she even counts herself. In the words of Brene Brown, Boaz is feeling with Ruth. He's telling her in so many words, you're not alone. And he's showing her by his actions that he, a wealthy israelite land owning male he boaz gets what it's like at some level to be her ruth after all according to matthew chapter 1 verse 5 a foreign woman prostitute named rahab was boaz's mom i was recently both challenged and comforted by this writer who describes jesus In the filth and poverty of 1979, excuse me, 1970s Bronx public housing complex, a modern place of gleaning. It was this really great book where he describes Jesus there in the grime of the everyday, a Jesus who was on welfare. Colin McCann's Christ figure, his Corrigan here, is this sort of out of holy orders Catholic priest who lives his days like Jesus lived his days with the most marginal, like with the addicts, and the prostitutes um, who, are, who are turning tricks, or soliciting favors under an overpass nearby to the Bronx public housing. And Corrigan does this really beautiful thing throughout the whole section of the novel. He's bringing these prostitutes warm cups of coffee. He leaves a key for them so they can use the bathroom of his apartment. He's holding on to their young dreams for them and giving them hope. He's getting beat up by their pimps for his efforts. Corrigan was just trying to get level with other people. In his own words, he was trying not to let people be left alone in the pain and the terror of life. He was trying to take on those pains and those terrors with them. He was trying to give them new places to go. People who didn't have a lot of places or choices. The more I thought about Jesus in that situation there, the less surprised I kind of became and the more it made sense to me, right? I felt Jesus was born into poverty. He was, a, he was as foreign as it gets. The God of heaven became a human being on earth. And as for family and social status, Jesus never married on earth, right? His dad, a small town carpenter, the primary breadwinner, probably died before Jesus became an adult. Not to mention the fact that Jesus was known to hang out with all the icky people. The icky people like the prostitutes and go to their parties on their turf and get verbally assaulted by the religious pimps for it. And there's something about that image of Jesus whether you're with me or not that that image of Jesus the man, Jesus who was descended from Boaz Boaz whose mother was a foreign prostitute Boaz who would go on to marry a foreign gleaning wife. That image of Jesus reconciling all these things under the overpass with a warm cup of coffee Jesus at the edge of a field with a blessing on his lips or the offer of a savory meal that challenges me that challenges me into a personal discomfort will I give my presence will you give your peace of mind away on occasion do you, do I notice every kind of person will I try to get what it feels like to be him Will I try and find something in my own personal history, something about me that relates? How can I be so present to someone that it changes the very way she views herself? To get even more concrete, will I walk into a room like this, into a union like this, and ask very different questions? What would it look like not to ask, who do I know? What would it look like to ask, who can I love? What would it look like to speak and act as if I was constantly asking the question, who's left out, instead of who's easy for me to be with? The love that moved Boaz to give away his presence, to give away his comfort... Was intimately tied up with the love that led him to give away his good things. And we see this in our second point, verses 7 through 17, a love that gives good things away. Okay, so whether Ruth explicitly asked for it or not, Boaz goes over and above the letter of the law when it comes to gleaning. Okay, so according to the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, Ruth, as a gleaner, was only to cut down and to pick up passed over grain on the very edges, the very margins of a field. Okay, But in verse 9, Boaz tells Ruth to keep an eye out for the stocks that the women harvesters fail to bundle up. That is, he's inviting Ruth to wander into, to work in the very middle of the field. Further in verse 15, Boaz tells the laborers to let Ruth glean even among the sheaves. That is, Ruth gets to harvest, still standing stalks of barley, just as if she were one of the harvesters. Just as if she worked for Boaz. She's getting the first cut. okay. And then finally, it's even more so. In verse 16, Boaz instructs his women workers to also pull out some barley stalks from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. So Boaz is not just giving Ruth the opportunity to harvest from the edges of the fields. He's not just giving her the opportunity to pick up leftover stalks in the the fields middle, or even to harvest these standing upright stalks in the middle of the field like a harvester. Boaz is actually giving Ruth all of this and Prime already cut down and harvested stalks of barley. According to verse 17, all of this, after some threshing, yields 30 pounds of grain in one day. Just to give you some sense of that scale, because that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of us, okay? 30 pounds of grain is uh, it's 15 times the average worker's daily salary. 15 times. It's one month's grain ration in one day. So this is not just an amazingly good haul for Ruth and Naomi. It's actually extremely self-sacrificial for Boaz. Do you see this? This grain comes from the same pile that Boaz needs to feed himself. It's the same pile that he needs to pay his workers from. It's the same pile that he uses to plant next year's barley crop. So in the words of Paul Miller and Carolyn James, Boaz wants to overwhelm Ruth with his love And he's not calculating a manageable percentage of his income. He's pulling out bills from his savings in fistfuls. Boaz is loving his neighbor as himself, as he would want to be loved. He's not simply permitting Ruth, he's promoting Ruth. Perhaps we can see how much faith in God this would take, right? It takes a lot of faith for Boaz to believe that God will reward, or at least not punish him for his self-sacrifice, right? But giving away good things also takes grace. It also takes an awareness of our problems and our needs as well. And let me tell you a story to illustrate this point, okay? It's at the beginning of the semester, maybe early September, and I was walking to my car um, I had taken a personal day to read and to pray, and I was walking to my car in Mooresville, in a parking lot. And uh, this, as I was walking there, keys ready to go, a beat-up blue car kind of cruised by, then cruised back by, and rolled to a stop right in front of me. An old man leaned over his silent, staring-ahead wife, and as she kind of clenched her jaw, he asked for some money. He told me they were from some small town I'd never heard of in North Carolina, and they needed gas to get back home for the night. Or otherwise, they'd have to sleep in a car, or who knows what. And ordinarily, I'm kind of prepared for these moments. Um, I don't carry on cash, usually. Uh, I grew up in basically the inner city, near the, the edges of the inner city of Columbus, Ohio. I know that's not rough and tough, but it is an in- a city, okay? And I have a lot of friends, because I work in ministry, who work with people who are homeless, or people who are asking for money. And so, uh, and they tell me over and over not to give money, but to give food or to give service or whatever else. But this time, I knew I had cash, and I had just finished reading that essay by Wendell Berry that I quoted last week, that we discussed here. Right? The essay with the two questions that he asks us and asks himself: If we would we have followed Jesus in his time, and also, would we love someone if it ever became excruciatingly painful to do so? That was like that cash, those questions were like ringing in my head. And then there was this hard-to-percentage-out combination of professional guilt. A minister. Uh, I should do this. What if people see me not giving money? Uh, Does that mean I don't love Jesus? The the genuine concern for other people. There was a genuine concern for these people. And so uh, I ended up giving the last $20 I had to this man and to his wife in the beat-up blue car. And for a split second, I felt really, really good about my decision, okay? I felt very proud of myself. The older man even said something like, the Lord bless you, or God bless you, or may you be blessed. But then he floored the gas pedal, and the beat-up car screeched and swerved right past the gas station that was attached to the strip mall, and took off. And at that moment, I second-guessed my decision. Like many of us have been in these moments, right? Who knows what to do? I second-guessed. Driving home minutes later, uh, I kind of paused the self-recrimination audio tape that was playing in my head. You know, the one that has like the guilt over losing $20 of our money. Uh, The shame of having been so stupid. Uh, Then I realized that God does this all the time with me. He gives me all sorts of gifts all of the time. And just a small reading of the Bible, it seems like he has some ideas about how I might use that money, that time, that strength, that love, this very breath. And there are times when I tell him things to his face that I think he wants to hear from me. So I can get what I want how I want it. And then I try to screech and swerve out of there, out of his presence, out of religious-y things, out of Jesus-y feelings, and into my own world. But, from what I know of God, he doesn't handle giving away good things to us with guilt or shame. He gives me a good gift because he wants to. And he likes me. All the good things we have are not filled with conditions. There are many things in this life that we do not have to rent to own. They are for the just and the unjust alike. Yes, there are consequences for foolishly using them, but that is way different than karma. That is far different from God getting back what's his. And so perhaps Boaz knew that he couldn't get Ruth and Naomi to use the 30 pounds of his grain how he wanted them to. And perhaps that was the point of the gift. It was for them to use freely. It was respecting her dignity as a person over and above what she, Ruth, or she, Naomi, deserved. And really, this idea of a gift above, over and above deserving is the heart of verses 18 through 23 and our final point, our third and final point. A love that takes on ownership. In these verses, the connection that we readers know, we know that Boaz is a relative of Naomi, and we know he's being generous to Ruth, and we know that he knows who Ruth is, all of a sudden that becomes apparent first to Naomi by the name of Boaz, then to Ruth by the explanation Naomi gives. And the significance of that connection is highlighted by Naomi in verse 20. Okay, We read, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. The word translated kindness is like one of those Hebrew words. It's called chesed. Chesed, okay? And that word is notoriously hard to translate. People have given multiple definitions of it, but it's really at the very essence of God's character. But to understand who God is, to understand this whole book of Ruth, to understand the whole Bible, and I'd argue the whole universe, you have to understand what chesed means. Naomi sees in Boaz's love for Ruth, God's chesed. Okay? God's deep gladness, his absolute loyalty, his obligation to keep his promises, whatever it may cost him personally. It's a bone-deep commitment to voluntarily do what no one has the right to expect or ask of God. God cares and freely made it his business to look out for you. That's what chesed means. And God's business is extraordinary, unexpected, exceptional, radical, costly, and completely and utterly free. All of that's wrapped up in that word. But in case like that feels abstract, and a laundry list of adjectives, which it probably was, that's fair, um... In case that's the case, there is, verse 20 also leaves us with an Old Testament historical figure, a person that embodies Chesed, the kinsman redeemer, or Goel, of verse 20. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, and therefore he's expected to take on and help his tribe recover from human losses. He has to avenge murders. He has to buy people out of slavery. He has to to recover losses from judicial losses, like lawsuits he has to take care of. Economic losses, he has to buy back property that's been sold out for debt. He has to take back marital losses. He's called to marry childless widows to preserve the family name. It's so fascinating, in a cultural moment that we live in, where we're oftentimes encouraged to pursue lightness and a lack of relational commitments, this stands in stark contrast. There's a Goel redeemer willing to take on new responsibilities. Listen to the way that Paul Miller describes a Goel. He risks helping from the inside. Redeemers own the problem. The weight of the other person's life falls on them. And this is the very opposite of advice: a safe helping from the outside, love from a distance. And it's the Goel is historically unique to Israel. It's the very essence of Jesus' love. Jesus was the, the essential goel. Paul Miller continues, roughly 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, he was the goel for the world. Jesus didn't simply, God didn't simply send a stru- an instruction booklet, a book of instructions. He sent his son. He didn't give us advice. He gave his flesh. He didn't just show us how to do it. He did it himself all the way to death. Jesus is the perfect goel. Okay? So that's a true story. A true story that God becomes a man like us permanently. Do you think it's I think it's so fascinating that Jesus continues to be both fully God and fully man in heaven. He burned his passport. He's forever a human being. And he died at death for us, even in heaven his wounds are still open and they still throb. Jesus did this to follow through, to own all of my problems, all the problems with me, and to own all of my many losses, all of our losses for us, and to change the way that we see ourselves, the way that I count myself in or the way I count myself out. And really, that story, no offense to Miss Swift, But I think that's the best love story ever told. And 2.2 billion people's hearts and minds and even wallets would agree. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time to unpack just what is love? What does love exactly do? And it's challenging. It's challenging to think about the way that Bows is just a picture of Jesus' affection for us. It's embarrassing. It's hard. But I pray that we would see it. That he owns our losses. That he takes on responsibility for us. And I pray that we'd rest in that and we'd rejoice over it. And I pray that you would be with these students that you, in the midst of the next thing and the next, next thing, that we'd all remember the ownership of Jesus. A love story of Jesus for us in your name we pray Jesus amen